0: Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field.
1: Visit us at OnScript.study, say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at slash OnScript. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. It's my pleasure to introduce this different kind of episode. We normally focus on biblical studies and theology, and sometimes we'll do a more tangentially related subject like the episode we're bringing to you today. So this is a, um, a book I read recently. and was so compelled and interested in the subject that I, I wanted to interview the author um, Wolf Gruner about a subject that I'm that I read around in, namely Holocaust Studies. And uh, I think you'll find it really interesting. He has an interesting life story, and his research is fascinating on the subject of Jewish resistance in the lead-up to and during the Holocaust. So uh, I hope you, you find this fascinating, and check out his book. Um, thanks to Taylor Terzek for producing this episode, and to all of you who support the podcast, you can do so by giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Or some other platform if you haven't done that yet why not make today the day when you do that all right thanks everybody enjoy welcome back everyone our guest today is dr wolf gruner who holds the chapelle darren air and jewish studies and is professor of history at the university of southern california in los angeles since 20 uh, 2008. He's also the founding director of the USC Dornsife Center for Advanced Genocide Research since 2014. He's the author of 10 books and many other publications, among them his book, Jewish Forced Labor Under the Nazis, published by Cambridge University Press. And in 2016, he published a prize-winning book uh, published. It was republished in English in 2019 called The Holocaust in Bohemia and Moravia and it's also going to be published in Hebrew, I understand, as well. Uh, He's co-edited four books. He's an appointed member of the Academic Committee of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, is on an advisory board for the Center for Research on the Holocaust in Germany at Yad Vashem's Research Institute, and much more. And the book for discussion today is Resisters, How Ordinary Jews Fought Persecution in Hitler's Germany. Dr. Gruner, welcome to OnScript.
0: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, um, this episode is a bit outside the normal scope of what we we cover in this podcast, but the the topic interests me uh, greatly. So, you know, I got this email from Yale indicating, you know, letting me know what new books were out, and and they mentioned yours and said, you know, do you want a a review copy uh, for consideration for the podcast? And I thought we don't normally do books. you know, just on history or on the, on the Holocaust more broadly, but this this one um, caught my attention uh, in part just out of personal interest. I like um, I've uh, have read around in this subject, um, and I feel like I there I have a lot of questions. Uh, I also spent a couple of years in in Göttingen. In your book, you mentioned Gertingen and we had uh, for listeners we had Susanna Heschel on the podcast uh, several years ago, talk about her book on the Aryan Jesus in the Institute for the Study of and Eradication of Jewish Influence in German Religious Life. Uh, but this book's new territory. So, um, you, you know, this this fits within more broadly the uh, Holocaust studies, you know, study of anti-Jewish policies and responses among uh, Jews in Germany and beyond. So perhaps you could help our listeners by orienting them to the field of Holocaust studies more broadly. What are, What are the big questions at play uh, in research that scholars are pursuing.
0: So, that's a large question and could fill kind of uh, another podcast, but just to keep it brief, uh, I would say um, main concern for a long time was the study of the perpetrators to find out why are people committing these crimes, uh, what are their motives, uh, 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 their incentives, and so on. More recently, Uh, There's a lot of study on the impact of uh, the persecution onto the Jewish population. Um, And uh, I think also more evolving is now kind of how the Jewish population responded. And I think Mm -hmm. that's where my book fits uh, in uh, very well, is to really thinking about Jews not as just as victims of an oppression and kind of an extermination policy, but really as historical actors
1: yeah as agents with uh, you know you talk about in the book. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that. Um, I, I w- I'd like to hear maybe a bit more from you personally, what prompted your interest in this subject. Um, you know you've you've written, this isn't your first book dealing with Nazism and the holocaust. so what what is it that that drew you into this field initially?
0: You mean a general holocaust studies or you mean how I came to the subject of resistance.
1: Um, so so more broadly, and then, and then maybe you could then talk about this, the particulars of this book.
0: Yeah. So the I, it's really it's a kind of a very uh, kind of twisted story because um, uh, I grew up in uh, East Germany under the communist uh, regime, and uh, at the time, after finishing high school, with some problems uh, because of kind of I was a little bit starting to be distant to the regime. I was actually a poet and um, uh, wrote short stories, worked in the printing office, and I didn't actually think about uh, studying or going to college. And so, um, but I had in my daily life uh, experiences of uh, racism among the East German population. And uh, especially in my personal life with one of my first love, uh, she was half Vietnamese and half German. And so I experienced a lot of kind of, slurs against her, kind of insults and so on. And as you can imagine, when you're young and you are in love, this is really uh, impacting you uh, emotionally very deeply. And so I started reading about where is racism coming from? What are the kind of the reasons for racism? And at the time we we are talking at the beginning of the 80s, most of the books uh, talking about the subjects were on the one hand on the Holocaust and the second one they would say uh, it always kind of uh, requests a state-sponsored ideology. However, this kind of collided with my personal experience in East Germany because in East Germany, the state was actually the opposite. It was kind of promoting uh, workers in the whole world are equal, right? Solidarity with kind of developing countries in Asia and Latin America. So the state never promoted racism. However, on the ground, uh, within the East German population, there was fierce racism and fierce racist attitude. So to bring kind of to understand this kind of contradiction, I decided to study history. So this is actually why I really got into undergraduate studies in history with the aim to use kind of to investigate the Holocaust as the prime German example, um, and to kind of somehow to understand this phenomenon.
1: And, and so you studied now did you study that in east germany or was that elsewhere
0: no so i uh uh kind of applied to study history at uh, uh, one of the uh, East German universities in Berlin, and uh, was first rejected because I had not a kind of a clean political record. Okay. Uh, because I was part it, of your, this kind your of... Your
1: poetry was not uh, up to snuff, huh?
0: No, no. it was uh, They uh, didn't want to publish it. I was part of this cultural sub-kind uh, of uh, underground where a lot of the political dissidents, but also artists, met and uh, in East huh. Berlin. Um, and which also kind of, we can talk about this later, I think, uh, uh, primed me a little bit for this topic. Um, uh, So when I uh, uh, was rejected, then I approached the only kind of um, academic in East Germany who worked on the Holocaust uh, and asked him and said, uh, point blank, I want to study the Holocaust. Can you help me to mm. get into the university? And mm. he did. So he kind of managed to get me an interview. I passed, and then I was in. It was not easy, because in East Germany it was very kind of dogmatic studies. And um, so I had also was almost expelled from the university again. <laughs> so, But I studied this already then. My whole studies were kind of uh, focusing on this topic. I wrote my senior thesis on the later topic of my dissertation, which was uh, Jewish forced labor outside of concentration camps. Oh. And uh, and then I finished my undergraduates when the wall came down. And this was a very kind of lucky coincidence because I could not have done my PhD in East Germany because, as I said, I was a little bit distant to the regime. I was not member of the Communist Party. And so I could have not have uh, had an academic career in East Germany.
1: Mm. Mm. Yes, that's good timing. So I, I'm curious about your experience as a as a poet in East Germany. Um, it kind of reminds me of like the, the the person that comes to mind for me is Václav Havel <laughs> in uh, <clears throat> what's, uh, you know, became the Czech Republic. So um, what was, what kinds of things were you doing as a poet? Um, and, and in what ways did your kind of experiences as uh, in in that form of resistance shape your thinking then for this book?
0: Yeah so I mean uh, uh, as I said, uh, I wrote poems and short stories and uh, they were in a way I didn't find them really extremely critical, but they used time, for example, forms which were not kind of mainstream, Uh, Hmm. kind of socialist poetry, so kind of more expressionist forms uh, uh, kind of playing with words. And somehow even this kind of diverging from mainstream was perceived as kind of not kind of uh, uh, appropriate uh, in kind of socialist uh, culture. And then I had a lot of kind of connections with uh, more prominent uh, kind of uh, cultural dissidents who... Kind of also published uh, their poetry in the West, which I never did. And mm. so, um, and there was kind of surveillance of these circles, um, everything we kind of organized, for example, readings, which were kind of done in private kind of um, environments like yep. apartments or patios. We went to music acts, which were also kind of not um, officially kind of listed. And so there was a lot of this kind of stuff all going on. And we were always had to be aware Were well, kind of the police, the security uh, service, and uh, some of my friends uh, kind of were also kind of in a way persecuted. And so this is which I think created an understanding how little things can be perceived by a state um, as dangerous and right. are persecuted. Even things you normally in an open society would never kind of perceived as uh, dangerous for a state, right? state has all kind of the uh, whole power, so it would not kind of make any dent. But in a kind of a close society, in an authoritarian regime, that's very different. And I think this provided me a very different sensibility for what I later discovered um, in the uh, in the files. But it was, coming back to your original question, yeah. but a long way from uh, kind of throughout my books, uh, from where I started, because I was trained as a German historian. German historians at the time were trained more to look into institutions Mm. than into people. So Mm. I started out with kind of looking into like, civil uh, um, uh, authorities, how they kind of uh, participated, initiated anti-Jewish persecution, first uh, labor offices, um, uh, regarding Jewish forced labor, but then also uh, municipalities, because they were often kind of employing Jewish forced laborers, and I started to get more into them, what the, the municipalities do. And there I found the question very intriguing, uh, that uh, a lot of the initiatives were very diverse. So the, every municipality acted differently. So there was not kind of this old uh, kind of um, understanding at play that everything is directed from the center, from Berlin, from Hitler, and so on. Right. There was a lot of initiative on the bottom, and uh, 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 very much showed me how dependent these policies are on individual people and their responsibilities. Right. So, individual mayors, kind of heads of departments, and interestingly it also opened my eyes that, uh, for example, some of the most fierce anti-Jewish policies on the local level were not introduced by Nazis, but sometimes from non-Nazi party members. Mm. So when I saw these diverse polities, how they evolved, and uh, then I started to think about um, uh, how did they actually impact the Jewish population, Mm. right? Uh, How did the Jews kind of understood these policies, and I think this also explains a little bit why so many Jews did not leave the country, because in the beginning, it was really what happened in Hamburg was very different what happened in Leipzig or in Frankfurt Mm. or Berlin. And then if you were a businessman, you were treated differently in Hamburg than, for example, in Göttingen or in in, um, Dresden. And the same is true if you lived in Hamburg. If you were poor, you were really exposed to harsh anti-Jewish measures. But as a businessman, you could relatively kind of get along uh, for quite a while. So this showed me how diverse these policies were and how they were also received on the uh, the Jewish population. But when I looked into this, then I realized uh, the Jews also responded to this. For example, the Jewish communities, uh, Jewish organizations. Um, So they kind of responded to these policies. And this kind of provided, in a, it's a long trajectory of 22 yeah. decades of uh, research, then they provided the ground then uh, for the moment when I found this first document which led me to the book, which was in 2008 when I was sitting in an archive in Berlin. And I looked at uh, a source nobody had looked at ever for uh, the persecution of the Jews. These were police diaries of uh, local Berlin police precincts. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I had uh, looked at them earlier for another work and I s- decided uh, uh, that at some point I wanted to go through them systematically. Uh, so there are 30 kind of diaries uh, uh, that has survived uh, in uh, the Berlin archive of different police precincts. And they range from 33 to 45. Um, and uh, so... When I was hired at USC, I took three months off and said I go through them before I go to the U.S. because I will probably never have the chance to have so much time anymore. And that's when I found the first trace of this uh, uh, Jew- Jewish man who was uh, arrested for protesting the persecution of the Jews. And mm. which hit hit me uh, kind of in various ways because I never found something similar that... Uh, just the idea that Jews pro- protested in public right. against Hitler or against the Nazis or against the persecution was so foreign for our right. understanding, right?
1: Yeah, that kind of brings me to the question, you know, like in, in popular accounts of the Holocaust, people are uh, often familiar with, with the Jewish uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto or the revolt at Treblinka and other places as well. Um, but as you mentioned in the book, there's this, trope that jews were led like sheep to the slaughter and a, and a kind of general willingness of victims to follow orders so where does that view come from and in, in how does that need correcting in light of your uh research
0: yeah uh, so that's a very complex uh uh question because uh on the one hand uh, this kind of perspective uh, to focus on Jewish resistance, uh, 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 mainly looking at Poland, Eastern Europe, uh, uprisings in ghettos, and, for example, partisans' uh, activities in, uh, in the woods, uh, comes actually uh, kind of evolves already during the war. Hmm. So the first publications, for example, in English, uh, like from 1942. Talking a kind of extensively uh, or analyzing extensively the persecution of the Jews and um, the first kind of glimpses of the extermination policy, they have chapters on resistance in them. And, uh, or oh, let this one book from 1942, mm-hmm. but this exclusively focuses on these uprisings and partisans. So there is this idea resistance is always organized and needs to be armed to be perceived as resistance. Right. Uh, uh, This kind of never was let go. And uh, and I think focusing on the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and uh, partisan activity, for a long time, we didn't have a lot of evidence of kind of the scope of these uh, activities. So they seem to be isolated incidents, Mm. right? Mm. And this kind of, in a way, uh, confirms the idea that Jews didn't really resist because these were the exceptions of the rule. Today we know better that even in Eastern Europe, first of all, there was uh, tons of partisan activities which we never were aware of, which we know now now know. Yeah. We know a much uh, a great more deal about the uh, ghettos, uh, that yeah. there what was going on. There's also a broader understanding more recently that um, it's not just about, let's say, armed resistance. There's what Israeli scholars already after the war kind of tried to emphasize that there was cultural activity as resistance. There was religious kind of, uh, the preservance of religion as an act of resistance. However, all of these kind of uh, approaches, the old ones and also the more recent ones, they never really look at Germany. They always Mm. look at Poland and Eastern Europe. Uh, And uh, so it was, in a way, there was the sense that uh, in Germany, never really something happened resistance-wise because there were not kind of spectacular acts of resistance like the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising or the partisans.
1: And
0: even if there were, like there was, for example, an attack on a, a, a Nazi propaganda exhibit in 1942 in May Uh, by a kind of a leftist Jewish uh, forced labor uh, uh, underground group, Um, it's not widely known. Uh, Mm. So it was kind of uh, people, some people know, but it's not really a public kind of uh, uh, knowledge. And uh, so to look into Germany, what happened, and so it kind of evolved this idea The Jews in Germany adapted to the anti-Jewish policies because they were gradually, it was different from Poland, where it was kind of very harsh and very immediate and very quick. Um, They had time to adapt. uh, And I think this created this wrong picture that people kind of just subsumed to what the Nazis did and then either to trying to get out or kind of followed what happened. And I think my book kind of revises this entirely.
1: Yeah, kind of like being... Slowly boiled in water, and just eventually it's too late, right? And, yeah, and so, yeah. um, what kind of resistance are you exploring then in this book? Um, you know, the, we, we have the model of the French resistance, you know, this kind of integrated, organized network. Is it that sort of thing that you're interested in, or, or how would you characterize the types and nature of this resistance in Germany?
0: Yeah. So I focus in the book on uh, exclusively on individual acts of resistance. That means by individual persons, uh, single persons. um, uh, And this gives me the opportunity to kind of rebrand what I understand, what we understand uh, uh, of uh, individual, uh, of Jewish resistance to by including individual acts. Uh, This enables me to see a wide range of acts and, uh, uh, as I alluded to earlier, it, uh, it is in a way what the regime perceives as a threat. So, uh, what we sometimes don't really see that very small acts can be perceived as a threat. And I'm just to give the kind of your uh, listener one kind of example from today, think about uh, the Soviet, uh, the, the Russia right now. Right. There was this one uh, 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 example where a woman sat uh, on a square with a blank paper. Right. Right. This is nothing, actually, if you think about it, right? To sit with a blank paper. But it was perceived. The very
1: definition of nothing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But it was perceived by the Russians as a threat. And she was immediately arrested because they assumed this is a protest against the war. Yeah. So this is kind of what I see that the circumstances, the conditions actually create uh, kind of these acts of resistance. And, um, people are aware what they are doing. This woman was not sitting kind of by coincidence there with right. this blank piece of paper. Similar is true for well, what I investigate with the Jews, which ranges from, their acts range, so to speak, from, for example, contestation of anti-Jewish propaganda and Nazi yeah. propaganda from destroying Nazi symbols, ripping down Nazi flags. That's one part. Then I uh, 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 talk in the book about... Uh, public protest, so verbal protest um, of Jews, uh, which is uh, either against uh, kind of certain anti-Jewish legislation, or it can be also scolding Hitler in public and uh, the whole kind of Nazi entourage. Um, Similarly, another uh, area is kind of written protest, which ranges from uh, petitions Mm -hmm. uh, to all kinds of Nazi institutions which uh, often are kind of seen as written in vain, but they included a lot of kind of um, self-determination because yeah. uh, Jews defined themselves as Germans, as put a kind of uh, participating in German culture, contributing to their home country and so on. But then it ranges, uh, goes to, for example, anonymous leaflets, yeah. scolding Hitler. One of my stories in the book is of a 63-year-old real estate broker from Munich who very late during the war uh, kind of uh, is so fed up after the Yellow Star is introduced that he uh, writes enormous postcards. Right. And he calls Hitler a mass murderer. This was in 1941, uh, beginning of 1942, where barely kind of Uh, uh, information about what happened in the East trickled into Germany. So he was kind of, in a way, very uh, prophetic in what he did. And uh, this was not a small feat because these anonymous postcards uh, led to a trial at the um, German People's Court where he still defended his actions as that he scolded Hitler for kind of uh, promoting the extermination of the Jews and he kind of suffered the consequences by being executed. Uh, after receiving the death penalty. Um, and the last uh, kind of uh, areas are uh, disobedience to anti-Jewish legislation and local restrictions, and then physical self-defense against verbal insults or physical attacks.
1: Yeah, the, um, just to go back to the story of the the man who sent the postcards, I, I found that to be a really moving and um, powerful story. You one of the surprises of this book is that it is a work of history, but but in many ways, it's five mini biographies with, with then kind of reflections beyond those individuals. And I think that's what makes the book very uh, engaging um, is you have these stories. So this, this guy sends postcards. He, his wife doesn't even know that he's doing this because he doesn't he probably doesn't want her to maybe stop him or get her in trouble. Maybe just figures, hey, if she doesn't know, she can deny knowledge of it. But he, he sent, um, I wrote down one poem he wrote, since you're a poet, I, f- I figured this was a uh, point of connection. <laughs> um, So he has, he, he would send these anonymous postcards with a stamp on it that say Heil Murderer. And then his poem is, the Almighty is in heaven, the f- Fuhrer, so it's Fuhrer, play on um, the German word Fuhrer, um, is an atrocity person. God decides for all people everything and doesn't tolerate other gods. Hail, he is himself a god indeed, Um, speaking about Hitler. Um, He even had a prophetic statement on one of his postcards that says murderer of 5 million, which is pretty astounding. Um, I forget what year that was, 42 maybe? Yeah, um, you know, he's, he's, he's not far from the final tally uh, on on that. So, um, yeah, just remarkable stories. And when you dig into any individual story, y- you point out that these are not just we can't just think of them as purely individual acts. Do you, want, do you want to just comment on that sort of between category. It's not a sort of organized uh, mass network, but it's also not isolated.
0: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, while I focused on these individual uh, stories and the individual acts to just make uh, a really uh, kind of uh, clear point in juxtaposition to what previously was done uh, research-wise and uh, kind of also to challenge our public understanding of what Jewish resistance was during the Holocaust. So I focus very much on the individual. I say at the end of the book that no individual exists alone. So there is always a network. And uh, while I didn't go myself into it, I think that's up to further research to really tease out uh, the importance of these uh, private uh, networks, which consists of family, right? First and Mm -hmm. foremost, friends, but can also include neighbors, workmates, uh, people you meet, uh, like by coincidence, but also your, your kind of... Uh, religious and communal institutions. Mm -hmm. So I think there is this kind of uh, uh, context for your actions because I think what I uh, learned is it is really important how the people you are close with, how you kind of, how they respond if you talk to them. So while uh, he was not um, the real estate broker from Munich, was not talking to his wife, still uh, he kind of uh, experienced with her all the persecution. And they, right. uh, what I try to do in the book is not just to, uh, to tell their individual stories, but also to give the reader a uh, sense how this local persecution environment was also different in each city. So they experienced, for example, that they had to move into a uh, kind of a camp, yeah. right, at uh, the outskirts of the city. So these uh, shared experiences also are which kind of uh, influencing individual decisions, uh, I right. think. And right. people can in sometimes consciously or in unconsciously confirm your decision-making or they can also challenge your uh, decision-making because it's too risky or
1: yeah. whatever. Yeah, so I, I've talked about this this man, Benno Neuberger, who sent these postcards. Um, did you have another sort of favorite story as you were researching that that really stood out to you?
0: Yeah, I mean there are so uh, the what is striking is I mean there are so many stories uh the problem is often the evidence uh, uh kind of uh the sometimes the uh kind of sources are scarce uh they are right. often very kind of uh, uh brief so uh it was really hard to do uh, and that's why it took me 12 years to research this book is to find really enough Material to write a full-fledged kind of story, yeah. uh, but one of these stories, which I am, it's really also an, another heartbreaking one, is the uh, the, the one of um, Hans Oppenheimer from Frankfurt, who is kind of uh, a seventeen-year-old boy who yeah. uh, uh, also doing the war, which, by the way, also speaks to the the, the situation that uh, the resistance doesn't kind of uh, kind of um, Reduces itself; uh, uh, the more persecution is there. Right. It's kind of in waves, and so in 1940, he breaks every night the curfew uh, because uh, he goes out and waits for the uh, Allied uh, bombing campaigns. And when uh, the sirens uh, start to uh, to kind of howl, then uh, and the bombs are f- uh, starting to fall, then he. Um, Sets off wrong fire alarms to divert the fire trucks, the firefighters yep. from the actual bombing sites, mm-hmm. and uh, he does this kind of for weeks in Frankfurt uh, in the uh, in the fall and winter of 1940 until uh, the Gestapo sets a trap and they finally get him. Since he, because of his fears to get caught, he moves only kind of very close to his home. Um, He's then put on trial, and uh, he's supposed to be tried as an 18-year-old, as an adult, but fortunately he's not. Uh, he ends up uh, getting three years in prison for these fire alarms. He never admits how many, actually, he did. He set off. So my assumption is he set off uh, around 40. Uh, they only can prove him, I think, nine in the, in the trial. And uh, uh, it is really remarkable Then he goes into a uh, kind of, he was um, in jail, and he is only 18. He never had a life, actually, in Germany, because even as a 16-year-old, when he finished school, he had to be immediately, he was recruited as a forced laborer. So he, uh, uh, like with 16 and 17 years old, he had to perform heavy forced labor. So he was already exhausted and uh, physically and also uh, emotionally uh, when he went to jail, and uh, he tries to commit suicide twice in jail. Yeah. Uh, And then in the end, uh, uh, he's not successful. He uh, gets very sick, but still in jail. He is uh, kind of, in a way, he... uh, is rebellious. So he complains all the time about the conditions. He's set in that he can't get doctor's visits. So even in jail, under these circumstances, he is still kind of not uh, kind of submitting to uh, the uh, kind of the the pressure and the oppression. And in the end, um, unfortunately, he then was deported to Auschwitz, where he immediately perishes. And so uh, he was not even twenty; just barely twenty years old when he kind of um, hmm. was murdered.
1: It, it may come as a surprise to some people that there's a, a a kind of due process in in Germany at this time for Jewish people. Um, so, and then now, albeit within the framework of a systematically corrupt legal code, but nonetheless, there that afforded. Jews the opportunity at various points to argue a legal case. So, do you want to just talk about the legal situation that Jews found themselves in, even up to, you know, 1941 or so in Germany?
0: Yeah. So, in Germany, uh, 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 it is really an interesting situation because the public uh, always thinks that. Starting in 1933, the Nazis, when the Nazis took over, this kind of like uh, legal vacuum uh, started mm-hmm. to emerge, and uh, uh, everybody could just uh, put uh, into concentration camps without any uh, kind of, uh, yeah, uh, regards to the law. Um, while this happened to, like, for your example, political opponents right in mm-hmm. the very beginning with these wild concentration camps. And also later, the Gestapo had uh, the uh, possibility to incarcerate people in concentration camps as a kind of preventive measure. Um, in the cases of these rebellious Jews, it is really interesting that the Nazis had a law, which they introduced in 1934, uh, uh, which they, uh, uh, it was called the Law Against Treacherous Acts, against the Nazi state and the Nazi party. And this was a law to quell any political opposition. And we never thought that this actually applied to Jews. But what I found out is that uh, Jews were on a regular basis kind of um, uh, punished under this law against treacherous acts, especially in the uh, uh, regarding the area of public uh, protest. So when Jews criticized the regime, anti-Jewish measures, protested in public, the Nazis applied this law. So they were not immediately kind of put into a concentration camp. They were perceived as kind of uh, harming kind of this law or kind yeah. of breaking this law. And so they end up in special courts. Sure. And these special courts were established in 1933, again, for the reason to kind of quell political opposition. And we always thought of them as especially Nazified. Yeah? Yeah. So they kind of, they had a very kind of, uh, there were Nazi prosecutors and yeah. we, we thought these are kind of prime uh, uh premier institutions of the Nazi state. Still in these special courts, Jews got acquitted. Yeah. And so it, it, it's in really also for me it was surprising because we thought always of the Nazi state kind of this uh, that there is this in uh steady Nazification of all institutions. Mm-hmm. But what I learned is from my research is that um, while this is true to a certain extent, we can't neglect that circumstances also play a role and individuals play a role. Mm. So certain circumstances, like international situations, like the threat of a war, or uh, uh, individual situations, a certain judge uh, can influence the outcome of these trials and. In a way, this whole legal system still perceived itself as uh, uh, adhering to law, even if yeah. they adhered to Nazi laws, right? Yeah, or especially anti-Jewish legislation. Mm-hmm. But uh, they called in witnesses, and when the witnesses were not perceived as liable, uh, reliable, then yeah, uh, they would kind of say either. The sentences is reduced, or even Jews got acquitted. Still, very late in the war, like in for nineteen forty-one. Yeah, yeah.
1: it's a, it's just amazing. It um, it's almost like the presence of a law, uh, even a corrupt and racist law, then creates the situation of a need for a trial, and and then you're up to the, you know, the particulars of the judge and and so on. Um, it, does that sort of fit? I was thinking of, um. Uh, the, the theory um, by, oh, what's his name? The guy that wrote, oh, Timothy Snyder, who when he talks about like the difference in, for Jews in Germany, as opposed to the East, where there's a, there's an a, a absence of a state, you know, a collapsed state in, in, uh, in, in the East, where, where there's a kind of legal structure still in place in Germany, that creates the conditions for survival. What do you what do you think about that idea?
0: Yeah, so I have to say I'm uh, I'm uh, I have a different opinion on this. Yeah. So I don't think there's an absence of a state in the occupied territories. There's You're a replacement of a state. There's a minute. colonial state uh, at work, which means that uh, the situation is. Uh, uh, in fact, different mm-hmm. from Germany because in Germany, you have a grown legal system right, uh, and a tradition which you can't throw overboard uh, within a few years. Um, and uh, in Eastern Europe, you have a kind of an occupation during a war where kind of a colonial, uh, colonial uh, uh, system is uh, established. So there was no absence of a state, right. but a different state. And right. I think the different state speaks to the, um, to the situation that the, the, um, the rules applied were ex- uh, so much more extreme than they were in Germany at the same time. Right. So, um, however, still even in, for example, the annexed poly- uh, Polish territories, which were yeah. incorporated into the Reich, where, for example, the ghetto Lit- Lit- litzmannstadt was, German rules applied. Yeah so this were, so we have also to distinguish what area are we talking about are we talking about occupied Soviet Union yeah. uh, eastern Poland central mm. Poland the German mm. government or western Poland which was then part of the Reich mm. so everything what where uh, the German Reich kind of uh, their laws applied the situation was a little bit better However, I would not say even that in Germany the situation was good because yeah. I didn't mention this, but first of all, Jews could not pick their lawyers because right. Jewish lawyers were, for example, kind of in a way uh, barred from uh, defending uh, Jews. They didn't get kind of um, uh, li- uh, be licensed at uh, kind of these courts. So they appointed uh, non-Jewish lawyers, which sometimes... Also, depending on the individual, right? Uh, sometimes did a okay job. Sometimes they were not interested at all. Yeah. Sometimes in one case they didn't even appear at the uh, at the trial. Yeah, so so because yeah. they didn't care. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. But the situation, the legal situation in Germany, so far was very different.
1: Yeah. So I mean, uh, your your work focuses in Germany, um, but, you know, filling that sort of gap in the research. What um, what can you say then about individual resistance in the East? It, it, did you do you have thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. So um, uh, I think um, first of all, let's go. When we think about Germany, uh, I also did some research on, let's say, Bohemia Moravia. You mentioned this earlier mm-hmm, with the book. Yeah. And uh, for example, in Bohemia Moravia, which was uh, in a different situation than Germany proper, you have similar. Uh, kind of uh, uh, acts of resistance and also similar kinds of punishments of these similar acts of resistance. Yeah, yeah. So you have the very kind of a similar scale of public protest of Jews, uh, for example, in Prague or in yeah. Bohemia, uh, as you have in Germany. Uh, we also know now from newer research, which has a little bit of broader understanding, and I mentioned just in the beginning that uh, uh Researchers now are looking also into kind of uh, ghettos in a different way than in previous decades. Looking also into more like day-to-day actions, and they find, I think, similar uh, acts of uh, and ways of resistance. There's one key difference here uh, for Eastern Europe and especially Poland. Uh, Israeli scholars were very early pointing out um, after the war that one big Feet was religious, spiritual, and cultural resistance Mm. to preserve kind of Jewish community, Jewish religion, Jewish culture, Jewish tradition. Here the situation with Germany is very different because in Germany, the Nazis had a very different approach because they wanted to segregate Jews from the rest of the society so they confined them to their own spaces they had to create their own cultural institution. So in a way, what they tried to destroy in Poland, they actually nurtured in Germany because of the separation between Jews, non-Jewish and Jewish Germans. Yeah. So Jews had uh, kind of free and support, uh, practically free support by the Germans, by the Nazi state to create their own cultural kind of uh, events, uh, their orchestras, but by the way of expelling them from, let's say, public orchestras, private orchestras. So this, that's why these, for example, phenomenon, uh, phenomena which we see in Eastern Europe, where culture is so important and yeah. religion and, uh, and, uh, and spiritual resistance, this is very different the situation in
1: Germany. And you... Um I'm I'm curious if you could just in in panning out um, comment on the well actually I had a previous question I wanted to ask you too about uh, Kristallnacht. Um, there's a another another narrative you're challenging in in this book is the idea that there's sort of as as things become more and more grim with the Holocaust and with the onset of the war that resistance diminishes as you move forward. 39 and beyond. Um, So I was just curious if you could comment on Kristallnacht and then the onset of the war, like what, what's the impact of that on, or those events on Jewish resistance?
0: Yeah. So what I've found out in my uh, kind of research is that uh, uh, it is really, uh, these, Jewish resistance is in a way uh, uh, determined by individual responses to their surroundings. And this yeah. means when you have, for example, anti-Jewish legislation like the Nuremberg law, uh, race laws mm-hmm. or events, violent events like Kristallnacht or the beginning of the war, which kind of practically meant the end of any possibility to escape. These are um, kind of points in time where, especially protests like public protest, written protest spikes. Yeah. So, what I see is there is not a steady stream of resistance, it's really depending on uh, the impact of certain uh, kind of uh, events and how individuals experience them. Uh, And I would say uh, there is maybe something which is interesting to witness that over time uh, also the oppression kind of, and the experience of oppression accumulates kind of anger and yeah. uh, repulsion. And I found certain hints that uh, uh, kind of quite a few uh, Jews then acted out uh, the way they did because they could not hold it together anymore, right? And even if they knew the, con- the potential consequences, and one of the moments in time is, Kristallnacht, where you have more people speaking up after the day after in public um, with witnesses, protesting against the violence, trying also to forge solidarity, Mm -hmm. um, or even doing the event to kind of, in a way, uh, document the crimes by taking pictures um, or by uh, publicly uh, uh, kind of defending themselves against attacks. So I think this is uh, remarkable to see, um, and uh, explains a little bit uh, uh certain kind of acts of resistance.
1: Yeah. Um, how, how has your work influenced your understanding of the Holocaust more generally?
0: Yeah. So, but I think uh, uh, in a way, as I mentioned earlier, uh, for me, this was a long trajectory from mm-hmm. looking into kind of certain policies and institutions, ending up now uh, kind of uh, were, uh, investigating the responses of uh, the persecuted Jews. and I uh, we didn't talk about this, but I think I should mention when we talk about Jews in this regard, uh, we talk about a very kind of heterogeneous group okay. right okay. Um, So uh, first of all, all of these acts of resistance were performed by young and old people, yeah. men and women yeah. um educated non-educated uh so that's a very heterogeneous group for these reasons uh, alone but then also the group we ta- we are talking about is actually uh constructed by the nazis because it's not just members of the jewish community uh, uh people of jewish faith we uh, we are also talking about People who converted to Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Sometimes their parents converted. So we are talking about Catholics and Protestants here too, yeah. right? Yeah. This is not just members of the Jewish community, and I think this is uh, important um, uh, also in this regard to, to to think about this as this very uh, uh, yeah, diverse group of people right. who, who reacted. Um,
1: yeah, I was I was surprised. Um, one of the points you make in conclusion. Um, is it, you know challenges other assumptions. You talk about how in general, um, you know resistance is ac- across the board. Like there's 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 no one group that you can say oh they're prone to resist. But um, women more publicly criticize, uh, men more often engage in physical self defense, uh, and and the elderly more than younger actively challenged forced name changes. So some of those were interesting to see those. Those general tendencies, uh, as well, and and some resisted multiple times. So you know, you'd think like one brush with with Nazi, uh, you know, criminal court or uh, legal system or Gestapo that you would be you know never do it again. But but these are people that would go back for you know resist yet again. So it's just remarkable.
0: Yeah, if I may add, I mean, this is uh, 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 I think. Uh, kind of an observation, which is not only true for Germany. Uh, So, for example, if you look into, for example, resistance of uh, Jews in Poland, you have similar uh, attitudes among some of the people. So, for example, uh, a good uh, dear friend of mine came to my classes here at USC, recently passed away, wrote this remarkable autobiography. Uh, His name is Sinon Neumark, and he describes in his autobiography uh, how he escapes several camps, right? How he uh, joins several resistance groups, how he kind of uh, saves other uh, Jewish, uh, Jews' lives. Mm. Uh, so he does this also. Uh, what I call this, resi- he has this resistance career. So he never stops resisting, although he's punished for it and so on.
1: Yeah. What What are some of the contributions that you would say you know your your book makes, or that you reflect on in thinking more broadly about resistance? Today, um, in whether in North America or elsewhere,
0: yeah. So I think the uh, uh, for me the most striking lesson is that uh, after discovering this kind of really widespread uh, attitude, um, which by the way I also then afterwards I realized, why would we assume that nobody responded? Right. That's kind of that's crazy even to think about. I mean, uh, so. Actually, what I uh, think is actually a normal way of uh, reacting to things is to respond. And so I think what the book shows is uh, if Jews under these most oppressive uh, circumstances uh, can resist, and if kind of all of these different people uh, can uh, resist, then uh, there's no kind of excuse for anybody in any circumstances to say there's no chance, uh, kind of the regime is too almighty. Uh, so, actually, it kind of challenges us in uh, to think about our own responsibility in circumstances when we disagree. That we need to kind of act on it.
1: Well, that's a great place to end. Um, I want to, if I could, commend again this book to to listeners. Um, Highly recommend Resisters, How Ordinary Jews Fought Persecution in Hitler's Germany, published by Yale University Press. And I should say it's a, a Yale Press book, uh, but it's at a, a very affordable price. So this is, this is not a, a $100 uh, University Press book. It's, it's around $35. So uh, highly recommend it. Wonderful stories in there. Uh, so, Dr. Gruner, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us at Onscript.
0: Yeah, no, oh, thanks for having me. It was a great opportunity and uh, really uh, also I enjoyed the conversation. So thanks a lot.
1: You've been listening
0: to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/slash/donate.